This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's For The State, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal land, the Eora Nation, and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Marilyn Hetrilees. Darren Hinch is once again drumming up his proposal for a public sex offender register. Now that he's senator, he's free to name names, but should the media march to his beat? Plus, former editor-in-chief of The Australian, Chris Mitchell, has published a tell-all memoir, and former prime ministers aren't happy about it. Did he say too much? And Facebook confuses an iconic war photo for child porn. Is it time the social media giant rewrites its editorial guidelines? Joining me in the studio, commentator and former host of ABC's Media Watch, Jonathan Holmes. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. And from The Monthly, politics editor, Sean Kelly. Hi, Marilyn. Hello. And on the line from the Australian Financial Review, Jennifer Hewitt. Hi, Jennifer. Good evening. We're live tweeting and we can put your questions to the panel. Our Twitter handle is AU. Shock jock turned Senator Darren Hinch took advantage of his maiden speech by using his parliamentary privilege to name names. Hinch argued for a publicly accessible register of convicted sex offenders and identified five men he claims are pedophiles. Senator Hinch said he will continue to name names in Parliament because he believes the public have a right to know who these people are. This puts media organisations in a bind. While they're not allowed to publish names of alleged criminals, they can report on what has been said in the Senate chamber. So far, most media outlets have decided not to publish these names. Jonathan, how much ethical wiggle room is there in a case like this? Oh, there's plenty of ethical wriggle room. I mean, I think you, it's an editor's decision what they do. There's no question, I think, that they can, they can legally report what Darren Hinch says. So long as it's a fair and accurate report, you have qualified privilege um, to report that speech. Uh, he has absolute privilege to say what he likes. So there isn't really a legal issue. Um, ethically, uh, it's a different matter. And obviously, most editors have decided, I suspect more for ethical than legal reasons, that um, they don't choose to uh, uh, report these names. Um, they may not feel they know enough about them. They may not feel that the consequences um, are calculable, and they're not. And Sean, what's in it for a media outlet that decides to name names, do you think? Oh, I, I think absolutely nothing, to be honest. I mean, there, there's perhaps a little bit of shock value, uh, but I think that they, my view is that they would be breaching ethical obligations. I agree with Jonathan. I think editors have made the decision uh, that Darren Hinch has, in fact, chosen very deliberately to circumvent the law in, in what is 
arguably uh, arguably unethical. And I think that they have acted on those judgments. And I think that that is actually doing their job. They've decided that there isn't anything that they would be adding to this story by releasing the names. Do you agree, Jennifer? Well, yes, I agree. Although I think those lines are going to get very blurred. For example, what's going to happen when um, those names get reported on social media, if there, there then becomes a kind of a story that develops out of that or some reaction. It, it just becomes um, a little less clear-cut, I think. But at the moment, um, you know, I think that's correct, that you, you don't, that the traditional media doesn't publish those names. But uh, I'm, I'm just wary about how, how much you can kind of keep those types of restrictions on uh, in the very um, blurred world in which we live. Yeah, so, social media. media changes all of this stuff, all this gatekeeper stuff, mm-hmm. all the decisions that the mainstream media used to be able to make. Jennifer's absolutely right. Um, everybody's making these decisions now. Everybody who has got access to Hansard can choose to publish those. No, they may actually not do it legally, but who's going to sue them? Though I will say it's kind of an updated version of a, an old thing that used to go on, which is that stories, this happened in politics in particular, stories, fairly dodgy stories, fairly murky stories would be published in overseas press and then a British newspaper might royal say stories, royal stories especially and later on presidential stories in the US and, and a British paper would say, well, I, we are reporting now that the German newspaper has reported that that Princess Diana has done this and that that was a way of legitimising the story, essentially laundering the story to make it clean. And social media has now made that very, very easy and very possible across the world. It was the Drudge Report, if you'll recall, that, that actually first published details of Monica Lewinsky yeah. and uh, Bill Clinton. And that then meant that all the media kind of uh, went into it. But these days, of course, it's it's not just one report and it's not something that kind of was worked up over a while. It's, it, it's instantaneous and it's kind of chaotic. One of the men that Hinch named was a McDonald's employee and McDonald's have responded by changing their hiring practices so now employees will have to undergo a criminal background check. Some people might look at this and see a politician getting things done. Others might see an abuse of power. What do you think, Jennifer? Well, I guess in in this particular case, um, it's very tempting to see it uh, as a a politician getting things done in, in a rather... Uh, effective way after a, a lot of frustration, uh, despite the, the very many ethical issues uh, involved. So I, I guess for that kind of case, it's a grey area. I probably tend to think that it's um, uh, a reasonable idea to have a have a criminal background check of employees. Hmm. I mean, we've seen obviously with with the the Royal Commission the horrible consequences of, of pedophilia. I mean, it really has strengthened. Uh, Darren's hand in a way, you know, the, what went on for those decades mm. when nobody did anything about these awful people. But, you know, I don't know enough about this particular case or whether this guy was really a danger to anyone. Um, you know, I, I just don't know. I, I will say, though, I, I do think very clearly that Darren Hinch has done the wrong thing here. I think that these parliamentary privilege rules are there to allow politicians to argue in parliament, to talk in parliament without fear uh, of of saying something that they are later going to be held to account for in the courts. I think that's very sensible to allow them to speak freely. I think that helps democracy. But when a legislator takes on the job uh, of legislator, they're supposed to be passing laws. They're not supposed to be using the privileges they have deliberately to get around laws. And I think that is what Darren Hinch has done. And so while in the McDonald's case, perhaps a good result has been reached, I think it's been reached in the worst possible way. 
And naming and shaming pedophiles has come to be a bit of a career-defining issue for Hinch. He's been to jail for it. It hasn't stopped him. And he said he's, he'll continue to name names. How do you see this playing out? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear he will continue to name names. Uh, he has said, of course, that he'll pursue a, a national register. Uh, he's said that he's prepared for that to take a number of years, that he's not going to engage in any horse trading in the parliament to get that legislation through, uh, which means that he might never get it through, in which case we're going to be facing a, a lot of this naming and shaming in years to come. And I do think uh, also that in the end... Um, I can see Sean's point about, you know, politicians are there to kind of pass laws rather than try and uh, use them for their own uh, particular purposes. But I don't know, you know, then people will throw him out uh, if they don't like what he's done. So I don't think you can say that it's necessarily a uh, a betrayal of kind of democratic values um, to have someone who goes in even if you don't necessarily like what they say, but if, um, because in the end... Um, they, they will be voted out if that's not what um, their supporters well, want. Well, yeah, that'll be a lot too late for the people that uh, he, he potentially has damaged, though, Jennifer, won't it? I mean, that's that's the thing. Uh, maybe they deserve to be damaged. Maybe they don't. Um, then, then, you know, if, if somebody commits suicide, if somebody is, is lynched, if somebody is shot as a result of this, where would that leave Darren? I mean, you know, these are... Well, really I think it would really... leave Darren, Darren in, in a very difficult position, but, um, mm. you know, he's obviously prepared uh, yeah. to to pursue it on that basis yeah. uh, because he would say, argue that the that the greater crime is to um, allow uh, the potential for more yeah. victims. Yeah, yeah, well. Anyway, that's, that's his dilemma. <laughs> You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilles, and I'm speaking to Jonathan Holmes, Jennifer Hewitt and Sean Kelly. Former editor-in-chief of The Australian, Chris Mitchell, has released his tell-all memoir, Making Headlines. The book reveals details of private conversations Mitchell had with five Prime Ministers from Paul Keating to Tony Abbott. Many commentators, including Abbott, have criticised the memoir. They claim it breaches the journalistic code of ethics by breaking the convention of keeping off-the-record conversations confidential. Mitchell has defended his his expose, telling journalist Chris Kenny on Sky News that it was in the public interest to reveal these conversations with politicians. He gives the example of an incident where Kevin Rudd leaked to him details of a private conversation he had as PM with the then President George W. Bush. Sean, what does it say about the state of journalism when the former editor-in-chief of The Australian betrays the traditional trust between reporters and politicians? Look, I think you have to look here at whose trust is being betrayed exactly. And we're talking about politicians. When, in fact, we're not just talking about politicians. We are talking about prime ministers. And the thing about prime ministers, I think, is that once you decide to take on that job, you are handing yourself over to history. I think as soon as you are elected or as soon as you decide to take the job forcefully, uh, then you are you are opening yourself up to the possibility that any of your conversations, any of your actions will later be written about as a contribution to history. And you have to look at the, the reason that the journalistic code of ethics exists. You have to look at the reason that confidentiality between sources and journalists exists. And one of the main reason it exists is to even up a very unequal power relationship between a journalist who has access to a mass audience and their source uh, who has no idea what will be done with the information that they provide. When you're talking about a prime minister, I think that relationship is very, very different. Uh, And in this case, Chris Mitchell's offered a distinction. The distinction he has made is between what he calls source-protected stories, by which he means national security-related stories or whistleblower stories, and uh, and the types of interactions that he's reported in his book, interactions between an editor and very powerful people. And 
I don't have a huge problem with him revealing those conversations, except, and I, I think this is where Mitchell gets himself into a bit of difficulty, there is a big question about the timeline involved. And Michael Gawenda from The Age has raised this. He said, what, what timeline... Uh, at which point does it become acceptable to break these confidences? And I think that's a, a very, very good question. And Gawenda says it's it's not forever, and uh, I completely agree with that. The difficulty with Mitchell's book is that in some cases you're talking about events that happened in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, Tony Abbott is still a serving politician. Absolutely. Uh, very much a player in his own arms. Kevin Rudd is very much a player in his own mind, even if nobody else <laughs> But is. is there an expiration date on these off-the-record uh, conversations? I think well, the to other... the extent that there's an expiration date, uh, I, I think it's certainly not been reached now. I, I do disagree with um, Sean on that point. Um, it is very much the case that this is still kind of current politics. And I do think... Oh, no, we agree on that, Jennifer. Mm. Uh, well, particular, but, but particularly given um, the uh, pressures under which traditional journalism in that sense finds itself, uh, uh, one of the few things it does have is the ability to have a certain kind of relationship with with sources and to be able to tell people the real story of what's going on. And that does require uh, trust um, a trusted relationship. I've already had people, politicians and senior business people, saying, "Well, what, we don't know anymore. You know, we, how, how do you trust a, a, a journalist if if they're asking you questions but and they're off the record?" The whole problem with that, I mean, I, I, I absolutely accept that is the j- traditional journalistic argument. The problem with it is that um, by the very act of going into these kinds of agreements. Uh, you are not telling the public what is really going on. You're, in fact, concealing what is really going on. And arguably what Mitchell has done, and certainly his own justification for what he's done, is he's saying, I am telling the public what these people were really like, the way in which they dealt with the press, what they really thought about each other, and so on, and that this this is important information to convey. But that that information can be conveyed and is conveyed all the time, uh, without actually revealing the source of that of that um, that material. Well, I mean, what information? Yeah, for example, if you take the story of the the, the famous Bush phone call, um, it's 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 pretty murky as to whether, in fact, Bush ever did say to Rudd. Uh, what's the G20? I mean, there's, there's, I've read pieces just in the last couple of days that say that he was talking about the G20 for days before that and indeed had summoned a meeting already and so on and so on. So whether the story's true or not, as reported at the time, we don't know. What we didn't know then is that Rudd actually deliberately allowed Chris Mitchell to hear that conversation and then deliberately actually cleared it. That's fascinating. Actually, they sent the quotes to him and he cleared, his office cleared that story. Uh, absolutely deliberate leak of the most deliberate kind. Now, that's new to me, and that is really interesting. It tells me a lot of stuff about Rudd that I'd only guessed before. But uh, you're, you must be concerned on some level, as you said before, that Kevin is still a player on the oh, world stage. I mean, you know, Mitchell's broken all the rules, and the rules are there for a reason. I, I'm mm. not... So, I mean, look, I'm really conflicted about it. I'm not mm, being very too. clear. I, 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 I think... Uh, and I've got not got a lot of time for Chris Mitchell in many ways. I think he, in many ways, actually abused his power as editor of The Australian and and pursued lots of people vengefully uh, just because they, they disliked, they, 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 he disagreed with them. But in this case, I'm not so clear. Uh, I, I think there is a case for it, what he's done. Well, I'm probably in the other camp because I do have a lot of time mm. for Chris Mitchell having worked for him <laughs> mm. um, for a few years at The Australian. But, uh, and I find, found him a very good editor-in-chief. But in this particular case, I think he's done 
great damage to the reputation of journalism. Do you, what do you think, Jennifer, of this argument that Mitchell makes, that there is a distinction between journalists and editors? And I should say on Late Line the other night, he was asked uh, about the journalistic code of ethics, and he said very clearly, I think for editors it's a little bit different. Do you think that has any weight? Well, I don't actually think it does. I think, however, it is it is interesting that, that he didn't actually work as a journalist himself, mm. um, you know, in terms of going being in production then becoming an editor and you know and and a good one but he was not out there reporting you know in, in Canberra or anything like that but uh, I don't actually think there is and I certainly don't think the public draw that distinction if anything uh, the fact that an editor would do this um only makes only kind of compounds the error but Jennifer and it don't, also you, makes don't you people, think I mean when you when as a journalist you you do feel that you also you you talk to your editor if necessary and you do reveal sources in very sensitive cases to an editor only and therefore that even that I think makes it even more difficult but for, Jennifer for don't journalism. you think there's a distinction between obviously as a gallery reporter uh, you 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 have a conversation with a politician off the record that gives you a story or on background, whatever, and you write the story, you're not going to reveal that source. Everyone understands those rules. This is a, a, an account of an editor who loved to play the game. I mean, Chris Mitchell adored being in the centre of affairs, having conversations and relationships with prime ministers, which I think are actually questionable. I mean, I don't think uh, it's healthy for editors to be as close as he was to Kevin Rudd or to Tony Abbott. Um but they were not they were not journalistic conversations as such. They didn't lead to stories. Only one of them did, but most oh, well, of them. Well, didn't. I do. I actually you know? do think they lead to lead to stories. Um, I mean, but, I don't but, think. Those well, some did and some so didn't. But a lot of them didn't. A lot of what he's what he's said in the book um, don't lead to stories. They they are part of that of that of that very tight relationship where those prime ministers are trying to get the Australian to do what they want it to do, and Mitchell is is playing that game very cleverly, no doubt. You know, but it's a kind of not. It's not like betraying the source of a story to me. Well, actually, to me, it is. One of the really fascinating things is that we're not is that we're having a conversation about whether not enough things were kept secret. Often, the conversation about Canberra and about the press gallery is yes. whether too many yeah. things are kept secret. And and I mean, there's there's been some controversy around Mark DiStefano's book recently. He's from BuzzFeed, and about uh, the fact that he had a lot of conversations with people which people never said were off the record, which he has then. Reported. I, I'm a friend of Mark's, but I tend to agree with him. I think if a conversation is ex, isn't explicitly off the record and a journalist thinks that it's uh, in the public interest, then it's fair enough to report it. And I think one of the interesting things about Mitchell's book, whether intentionally or not, is it will make clear to a wider range of people the, the types of conversations that go on in Canberra all the time that do in fact uh, shed some light on the, the goings-on in politics and that often, perhaps generally, aren't reported. There are some good reasons for that, uh, which is that they, they allow reporters to get context that they otherwise wouldn't get. But sometimes those questions, I think, become very tricky. Mitchell said Rudd asked him which industrial relations policies his readers, his readers would like best. It may have been off the record, but it's pretty scandalous. Jennifer, would you say it's in the public interest to tell this story, to tell this secret? Uh, no, no, I still would not, um, and I certainly wouldn't do it um, in, in that way. I mean, that, again, that can inform coverage, and it can it can inform how things are written about the Rudd prime ministership, for example. Uh, but I, I think the cost is definitely too high if it means that he, um, within a few years, um, reveals the details of those conversations, and it just means that those sorts of conversations 
whether it's that one or any other, um, are less likely to occur. And I don't think that's a good thing for the for the public's understanding um, uh, because it will lead to less informed reporting. Well, and uh, yeah, you know, that's it's such a double-edged sword, this off-the-record stuff in Canberra particularly. You know, there was that huge controversy um, about Kevin Rudd precisely briefing briefing journalists off the record about his pursuit of Gillard um, that went on and on. He kept having these stories about, oh, he's going to, you know, in six weeks he's going to challenge, in a month he's going to challenge. Um, friends of Kevin Rudd say this, you know, associations. Uh, Bill, a lot of the time um, putting more and more pressure on Gillard that wasn't really justified in terms of the numbers. Now, there was a lot of controversy about that and some people were saying, um, look, if you've been briefed and you know that Rudd is lying when he says he hasn't briefed you, you should, you've got a duty to go out and say it. Uh, other people absolutely disagree with that, and I suspect you would be one of them, Jennifer. But, you know, it, it, there's something really quite unhealthy about the extent to which um, the gallery in particular relies on off-the-record reporting all the time. Uh, and most of us, in, our, in other kinds of stories that we do around the traps, uh, don't actually use off the record very much. Oh, at all. Uh, well, I use. I mean, I, I write a lot about business. I, I rely very heavily on off the record reporting and mm. and talking to all sorts of people in in business about what's really going on. You know that they can't. They're not going to be quoted for all sorts of reasons and, and and quite good reasons. But it does help inform my reporting. And if and my or my analysis of a situation. And if if that avenue was cut off, um, I I think that would be a bad thing. What's your take, Sean, on off the record reporting? Uh, look, I, I do think it's incredibly complicated. I, I think I think it's essential. It, being able to provide information off the record is essential to provide context, 100%. Uh, it is absolutely crucial to allow journalists to, uh, to develop a deeper understanding of stories. Sometimes it's incredibly important to allow sources to make very clear to journalists that a story that they have is wrong uh, while preventing... Uh, while preventing the the actual facts, I, I suppose, being reported, and sometimes there are legitimate reasons for that. Uh, at the same time, I think that Kevin Rudd argument, Kevin Rudd example, is a is a very big difficulty. I think the the case where Peter Costello made very clear that he was the only person who could uh, who could win at the next election, and that conversation was retrospectively taken off the record is a very difficult one to, to pass. Uh, and I think when you get into cases like that, you do get into the unhealthy relationship that Jonathan's talking about. Uh, I'm not saying that there are that there are very clear rules you can take out of this, but I am saying that it's a complex relationship that I don't think the public understand exists. Jennifer, do you think that books like this one make it harder for working journalists to create trust with politicians? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, because people, many people, and you know, some some politicians may, but a lot of people are not going to make those distinctions. You know, that Jonathan's making between an editor, for example, and and a, and a journalist. But I think quite rightly, it will make everyone um, slightly more um, apprehensive about uh, being able to trust the idea that even if they have worked with someone for a long time, that what they say off the record will remain so. Well, I think if that means there's fewer cosy chats between editors in chief and prime ministers, that's a good thing. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilles, and I'm speaking to Jonathan Holmes, Jennifer Hewitt and Sean Kelly. Facebook caused the controversy again when the social media corporation censored a Pulitzer-winning Vietnam War photo. Their reason was that the naked child featured in the photo violates community standards and could qualify as child pornography. 
The dispute ended with Facebook eventually reversing its decision because of the photo's global importance. It's a little-known fact that our Facebook news feeds are scrubbed clean of offensive material before we see it. Over 100,000 workers in Southeast Asia sift through content and extract photos with nudity, photos of beheading, and lots of others. If these are the conditions that mean we can enjoy the free service, is it reasonable for us to be outraged when a low-skilled, low-paid worker following the rules can't make a sensitive editorial decision, Jennifer? Well, but it's, it's more than than a low-skilled, low-paid worker following the rules. Um, they, these are kind of much bigger questions and, and we're still kind of struggling through them. I don't think there's a particularly clear answer on this. I mean, it, one of Facebook's... Um, you know, things is to say that they're not going to have editors and they're not going to be a news organisation when, in fact, they're, they're, they are becoming, you know, precisely that. Um, but on the other hand, how realistic is it to have, you know, a group of journalists sitting there and saying, oh, you can put this on, but you can't put that on? I, I honestly, you know, think it's it's a, just a bit of a, um, a mess and there's no um, easy way to say this should this should be allowed and this shouldn't be. And if Mark Zuckerberg keeps putting so much effort into censoring and distributing content, can he continue to claim that Facebook is just a platform, Jonathan? Well, it, look, it's it's so complicated. I don't think when, when Zuckerberg started Facebook, he ever envisioned that it would become uh, the main platform for mm. um, mainstream news organisations, for example. Uh, that newspapers now depend more on readers that come to them through Facebook than almost any other method. Uh, that this is a completely new development. And, and as Jennifer says, everybody's struggling to, to, to grapple with what does it mean? Where does editorial responsibility lie? I mean, of course, Facebook is going to have uh, rules about nudity. Otherwise, it would become a morass of porn like the rest of, <laughs> the, rest of the web, you know, um, and and all kinds of people would stop you. I mean, I think that's absolutely sensible. It's equally ludicrous that that particular photograph was censored. I mean, it's it, it was probably some 25-year-old kid who'd never seen it before but I mean it is such a famous iconic photograph it's just inconceivable that they would say oh that's child porn you know well editor-in-chief of the yeah. Norwegian publisher Aftem Post has suggested that Facebook should have separate guidelines for news editors and the general public mm. do you think that editors should be able to publish more freely Sean look I, I don't think that that model works I liked it at first glance but then you get into a question of Facebook having to decide who exactly is an editor which news organizations count mm. the fact is that people share links all the time so the fact is news agencies just put up uh, you know put up on their website stories and people then share those links so I don't actually see how that model would work pragmatically at all I think the I think the thing here is that many many businesses end up developing into completely different types of businesses over time and we have to be realistic Facebook is arguably the most powerful company in the world. Uh, and it has assumed that status in the last two or three years as it has become an incredibly dominant media player. And it is time for Facebook to grow up and stop pretending it is a tech company and start acknowledging it is a media company. Or uh, more complexly, to begin acknowledging that Media companies are tech companies and vice versa, and there is no clear dividing line. At some point, Facebook is going to have to get very serious about its news division and appoint not a group of editors to, to censor material, but a, a, a serious editor with a serious 
large editorial team but, underneath. But, but, but think about that. I mean, think about the... I'm not the, denying there are the problems. The massive material that was on Facebook. How many billion people... You know, every single publication in the world is now on Facebook. How can one editor or even a team of editors remotely control that? Now, I mean, again, more of a more of a situation. I mean, actually, I think, even though I, I agree with you that distinguishing between, you know, editors and other users of Facebook, but some kind of agreement that Facebook will not interfere with the editorial decisions of recognized media companies, mm. and whatever that word recognized means and however you work out the rules, might be possibly one way to go. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Jonathan Holmes, Jennifer Hewitt and Sean Kelly. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. My name's Marilyn Hetrilies. You can catch us at the same time next week. <laughs>